So we heard last night how Krishna had come with his friends, Sridam, Sudam, Vasudam, Kinkini, very close friends, and stole the gopis' clothes who were bathing in the Jamuna and climbed up into the tree, Kadamba tree on the bank of the Jamuna, along with his friends. And we discussed a little bit about the nature of these boys and so forth and how this particular sector of Krishna's friends are not involved with his romantic life. And this is rather the beginning of his romantic life. Under scrutiny, it's apparent that they're not really involved either, even at this point. They're going along with Krishna and they don't really understand exactly what's going on. This is how the Acharyas have explained it. They're too young to figure it out and at different instances in the affair, such as the gopis emerging from the Jamuna and so forth, they're distracted by Krishna and the gopis as if someone else is listening and is coming and they look the other way and and so forth. So, what we're discussing is uh, difficult to talk about. It's a, it's a um, we call it in English, the divine play of God, if you will. It's like we in human society, we're involved in, in the drama of human life. And spiritual practice in general teaches us to how to step back from the drama of material life and kind of observe it rather than be too caught up in it, which obviously could be and is problematic if it's only a role that we're playing for a short period of time. This life is here today and gone tomorrow. So spiritual practice, they say in general, helps us to step back from the drama and kind of center ourselves in ourselves, in our soul, and witness the drama of our karmic involvement with the world in such a way that we don't further implicate ourselves and create another drama, another life, and another life, and not know that this is what's going on, that we're moving from life after life after life through a drama of material circumstances in which we're constantly changing roles. At one point, we're the son. At one point, we're the mother. At one point, we're the we're the daughter, even in this life. At one point we're a daughter, and at another point we're, we're a mother. Mm-hmm. And in the next life, the roles might be changed. Same, same souls involved, but we might become a son of somebody who was previously our daughter. It's possible. Things are moving around to such an extent. The uh, material drama of our lives is full of changes. Nobody really goes anywhere. There's nowhere really to go. We're here. Mm-hmm. And, but we keep changing dresses. So we think things are different than what they are. So anyway, spiritual practice helps us to step back from that. So just as there's, we're involved in human drama of our karma, but in fact we're a soul and we have a life independent of this birth and death, and so forth, we can become liberated and rise above the whole human drama and make, uh, have a love affair with, with God, with divinity. That leads us to conclude that God must be having a love life with such people who have come out from underneath the oppression of their minds, demands, and the demands of our senses that drag us here and there. You know how, for example, the stomach makes a demand upon us, and so we eat. And even when the stomach says, enough, the tongue keeps demanding. So this way we're being dragged and pulled in, in different directions by our senses and by our minds. It's rather an oppression. 
an oppressive kind of life that uh, the drama of human existence can be unless we realize the, our potential as humans and the fact that that involves pursuing our spirituality. So if we can come out from underneath that, there's a life above it, so to speak, and that is amounts to entering into a love life with God. So in the tradition that our spiritual practice comes from, we conceive of God as being involved with such souls in his own uh, love life, so to speak, and a love affair with souls. And it takes so many different shapes, like love does in this world. Friendly love, filial love, conjugal love, and so forth. So sometimes, now to complicate things further, sometimes the divine play of Godhead comes within the circle of the human drama. That's an extraordinary event. And enacts, the Godhead enacts his divine play for a period of time within human society. And in the, in the Hindu scriptures we call this the, we call it avatar. It means avatar, from above coming down. Something like this. Amongst the prison inmates, they were all locked up and behind the bars. At the same time, they're doing something, having an oppressive type of life. There's a life outside that's free. Sometimes the governor, let's say, of the state, who's free, he comes inside the prison, right? So he might look like he's in prison, but he's got the keys. So sometimes there are incarnations of God that come and also great powerful lovers of God who come from that plane of divine play to this world of the human drama to tell us about the kind of things that we're talking about right now that we might transcend the human drama. So what we're discussing now is one of the recorded incidences in which the Godhead descended and enacted his divine play in in human society in India several thousand years ago. It's recorded in this text called Srimad Bhagavatam. So it's taking on the um, appearance of, uh, well, God has, uh, in this particular divine play, has assumed the form of an adolescent, which you might think, if you think about it, would be kind of an ideal form for expressing love in adolescence. Everything is fresh and new, and love is exciting, and your whole future is ahead of you, and, and so forth. And he's a simple uh, village chap. He's uh, unpretentious and uh, very smart for his age. And so in the play he has different associates who've come with him. His name is Krishna and he plays a flute and herds cows for his livelihood, for his fun. He just takes the cows out. He lives in in a pastoral type of setting. It's all significant because in this particular descent, He's teaching kind of the beauty of uh, simplicity and, and the beauty of love as opposed to power and knowledge. Just like even the wealthiest of people or powerful people like governors or prime ministers or presidents, they have their time where they like to kind of like step back from those roles of power and, and the demands that are placed upon them and just kind of relax. They go to their private place and relax with certain people who know them by names other than Mr. President and so forth. So Krishna is that expression of the Godhead that that's doing that. 
in a sense, stepping back from the role of the powerful God and everyone is just submitting to Him and, and, and so forth, and just relaxing, taking time off, so to speak. But He remains, of course, as God, but He, in a sense, is, is almost more than God. He's demonstrating His all-powerful position by way of just uh, playing because, for example, it takes power to play. If you want to play, you have to have some money in the bank. You have to have worked, right? right? So he's depicted only as playing, playing the flute, no demands really upon him, carefree life. And through this, he's inviting us to enter into that carefree life. And it's a whole yogic and spiritual discipline to enter there. So with that, I'll just further discuss this particular day in his lila that's recorded here, which is full of all types of philosophical insight and spiritual precept. On this occasion, he is uh, at come to the banks of the Jamuna River, which is a very famous and spiritually powerful uh, kind of sacred waters of India. And um, some of his uh, devotees, they are appearing in this, this divine play as young girls, and they're bathing in the in the river, and they desire to have him as their husband. So in the context of the drama, they're, they're worshipping a goddess and praying that they can get him as their husband. And every day they're taking a bath and doing this worship and chanting certain mantras and so forth. And this is the last day of, of the month-long ritual that they're involved in. They're bathing in the water. It's, uh, it's the full moon. Of course, it's daytime, but it's the full moon day, the end of the month, and beginning of the new month, really. And um, Krishna himself comes along with his pals, or also certain type of devotees who love him as a friend. Girls love him as a lover. These particular devotees love him as a friend, so they appear as friends. And these milkmaidens, they're called gopis, milkmaidens, who are in the water, they've left their garments on the shore. So Krishna's come and stole the garments, climbed up in a tree with his friends, and he's bargaining with them. Hmm? Give them... He's playful, clever guy, and um, and so on. What it is, it, it's it, the whole human love psychology is being played out here, but in a God-centered way. In other words, everything that goes on in human psychology about love, all the nuances and, and all of the movements and, and so forth that correspond with the psychology of love, that cause people in love to move the way they do, all these things have their application in relation to God. It's a far-out idea. But in order to arrive at that kind of plane, you have to transcend all of the shortcomings of humanity, so to speak. So these souls have like centered themselves on God in such a way, with such intensity, that they've arrived at a position within this divine play in which they themselves are having a romantic relationship with God. It doesn't have any of the shortcomings of the human relationship, but many similarities. Also, this is being talked about like this in human terms and so forth to help us understand the kind of intensity of, of love of God that leads one to such an intimate circle where they could be with God when he's like relaxing. And so it says to us that the intensity, for example, of a young girl's love for a young boy, it's probably the most powerful force in the world. There's nothing, anything you do to try to stop it only causes it to increase. So with that kind of intensity, 
just to give us an example for something we have to relate to in this world, these devotees are loving Krishna. So because it has that kind of intensity, it takes that kind of a shape. The play takes that type of a shape. But it's categorically different than just a young boy loving a young girl, which you know isn't divine, especially if he's to come and steal their clothes on the banks of the river and so forth. So, he's climbed up in the tree, the girls are in the river, and they recognize his voice, they hear his friends joking, and he speaks to them. He says, Atrat gaya bhala kamam swam swam vasa pragriyatam satyam bhuvani no nanma yadyuyam vata karshita. My dear girls, you can come here as you wish and take back your garments. I'm telling the truth, he says. Satyam bhuvani no nanma. Satyam bhuvani, I'm telling the truth, no nanma. I'm not joking. I can see that you're fatigued from being in the cold water. It's winter time. They're doing this. Yeah, this ritual is taking place in the winter. And uh, this is the beginning of the winter. And it's not quite as cold as here, but it's cold in that winter. So he says, I, I see you're performing uh, you know, austere vows and, uh, and you're, you must be fatigued. So I've compassionately come here and um, I've come to, to give you your clothes. Of course, he stole them. Uh, <laughs> And so they, they know he's joking, but he says, but uh, I'm telling the truth, I'm, I'm not joking with you. Don't think like that. He, what he's saying really is that philosophically we can also take this from it. He's saying compassion may take different forms that are not always recognizable, but it should be honored. So he's saying, actually I'm acting compassionately towards you by bringing your clothes. Someone else stole them and I just happened to gather them while you were in the water. And uh, I'm compassionately coming here and offering them to you. All you have to do is come out and get them. I know it looks like something else, but he says sometimes compassion looks like something other than what it is. It takes different shapes, but we should be able to identify it and honor it regardless of what shape it takes. So that's practical, actually. It's true sometimes. Sometimes, for example, a compassionate mother will say, to her child who needs to take some medicine but doesn't like the taste. That's all right, close your eyes and I'll give you a sweet. And the child closes her eyes and mother puts the medicine in her mouth. So on, the, on his face it looks like she's lying to her, she's cheating her, but actually in order to express the compassion to her and, and treat her with the medicine she needed, it had to take that type of external form of expression. Do you follow? So compassion is like that sometimes. But it should be honored if we can understand it. Like sometimes, for example, in, a, in our circle here, we are not actively involved in, let's say, politics. We're not actively involved as a group, at any rate, in um, feeding the homeless people of Baltimore. We're not against that. It's a good idea, but we're not doing it. So if someone was to come in, let's say, and, and I was in the circle, and they were to pass the hat for the homeless people of Baltimore. And everyone says, yeah, I'll give a dollar, I'll give a dollar. I'll come to the, let's say, the person before me, and the person before me says, no, I'm not going to give. Everybody goes, why not? And he says, because putting a dollar in the hat to feed the belly of a homeless person is not going to solve the homeless problem. I want to pass the hat, he says, to change the political system. Because the reason that people are homeless is because the governor's, uh, you know, doesn't care about him, whatever. The political system has created this. And so everybody goes, wow, that's a cool, that's it. You're taking it to a higher level. 
It looked like he didn't want it. He was mean. He didn't want to give. But he had a higher idea of how to express love for those homeless people. Do you follow? So they go, okay, let's pass the hat again. I'll give a dollar to change the government. Yeah. And it, and it comes to me, and I say, I'm not going to give. So now I'm the bad guy. But then I say, no, I don't want to give because I only have so many dollars, and I want to help the homeless people. But I know that the problem with the homeless people and the hungry people, let's say the hungry people, is that um, no matter how much you feed somebody, you never end the hunger. But if we want to end hunger, there's a way to end hunger. And the way to end hunger is to teach people what hunger is, where it comes from, what's the source of it, what produces that condition, and to uh, rectify that condition. In other words, what produces hunger is the souls. Souls need to eat, right? Mm -hmm. What we are is a soul. But we've identified with the body, and that needs to eat. So if we can learn to identify through spiritual practice with the soul, we can ultimately, not today or tomorrow, but ultimately transcend the hunger problem altogether by entering into the divine play of God, for example, where there's no question of hunger. So I say I'd like to give my dollar for educating people about this for a more comprehensive solution. And I don't say that other people shouldn't help on another level, but I want to be actively involved in a comprehensive solution. So I've kind of taken it to a higher level. But on its face, it looked like at first, like although I was showing compassion, I was kind of mean-spirited, I wouldn't give a dollar. So sometimes the point is that compassion takes a form that uh, is unappealing and uh, is questionable and you have to look beneath it to understand what's really going on. So Krishna's making a joke here, but he's, you see, in the context of doing that, in endearing himself to these maidens and in the midst of, of really fulfilling their own ambition that he become their husband and joking with them, which is a kind of exchange of, of loving nuances and so forth. This, all, all, this teaching comes out to us about the nature of compassion and how it takes different forms that we should recognize it for what it is and so forth. So these divine, this divine play of Krishna is pregnant with knowledge and spiritual insight for all of us at the same time. And if we, in the context of hearing the play, and we may be charmed by Krishna, we are also to try to draw some philosophical insights from that and apply that in our life because that's the means to enter into that carefree life. So he says... I'm not joking, I'm telling the truth here. And then uh, he says, uh, I've never spoken a lie, and these boys know it. Nothing could be, you know, he's, he's cited as his evidence for the fact that he's always telling the truth. His, his friends who are, it's a real joke. <laughs> it's a, the gopis aren't foolish, these maidens, they know. This is, this is a, it makes it even sillier. Of course, God is truthful, that's true, but... He's tricky also. And sometimes it's said, for example, if you deal with a politician, you have to be a politician. So if you're dealing with people, souls who are living in falsity, which is basically our condition in the material world, we're living to some extent in falsity, thinking I'm American or I'm Indian or African or woman or man or black or white. That's really not true. We're actually souls. So we're living in some falsity. So if the supreme truth is going to deal with us. Following the same adage that if you're going to deal with politicians, you've got to be a politician. You've got to kind of deal with them on their level. There are sometimes in his dealing, the truth's dealing, God's dealing with us in a land of falsity, an appearance of falsity also. So he appears to be tricky and say things that may not be true at first, but because he's giving the ultimate truth, then 
it is true. So anyway, he's joking. He says, I'm telling the truth, and I'm not joking. These boys will all testify to that fact, that I never tell a lie. It said about Krishna, that he, of course, like I'm saying, that he does lie, isn't it? That is said about him. But he's a Vaishya in this role. So Vaishyas have a, have a license to... Vaishya means like a merchant, like a business person. So they can say things like, for you I make no profit. Everybody knows they're lying, but, but it's okay. It's part of their dharma, so it's, it's all right for him to do that. And of course, if God lies, if God steals, it's all play. Because who can God steal from? He owns everything. Who can he lie to? It's only him. All there is is God and different expressions of God. We're an expression of God, a particular expression of God, in a sense, a serving expression. I think Arjun had that question... Krishna said to him, Manmana Bhavaman Bhakto Madhyajiman Namaskru Satyam Te Patijani Priyasime Satyam Te He said, I promise you, I tell the truth, Arjun, just become my devotee, think of me, offer respect to me, and I then you'll come to me. I promise you that this is the truth. But Arjun had some reservation because it, you know Krishna is not always truthful. So can he trust him? He thought people of Mathura are known to be Deceitful, so he questioned, Can I trust him? Baladi Bhajibhushan said something like, It's true that Krishna tells lies, but not to his devotees. But to them he tells the truth. And the others he tricks only to make them his devotees, ultimately. So anyway, he says here, I'm, I'm telling the truth, and I, somebody else stole the clothes, some forest creature, I happen to find them, I've come back here, I'm compassionately offering them, I see you're... you're in the cold water, you've been there for some time. And on this day, they happen to be staying longer than usual because it was the last day and other gopis like Radha, as I had mentioned, had come there. And so they were having kind of a celebration because it was the last day of their, their ritual, their, their bow. And so he says, hey, you've been there in a long time. Come on out and I'll give you the clothes. So seeing this kind of dealing with them, the gopis are charmed. This is who they want to marry. And he, he's come on this last day unexpectedly and is more or less by such joking in this culture, this culture in which this is appearing, that kind of joking between a young boy and a young girl, it, it, it means more than it would today. So they recognize he's actually expressing willingness to accept our proposal. They're chanting a mantra all month long. I want to be married to him. I want to be married to him. He's more or less coming and it appears as if he's saying yes. He's joking with them like, like a husband might joke with his wife. So they're, they're charmed by that. But they're not sure either. They're not sure. And they've come from very good families. So the idea of coming out of the water naked, in that culture, that's not something to do. So to come stand naked, they would be uh, their chastity would be in question and their reputations would be ruined and they come from very good families so they're hesitant to come out but they're very charmed by Krishna they want to come out but they're not not sure so they addressed him as follows manayam bhokritastham tu nandagopasutam priyam janimonga braja shlagyam dehi vasangsi vipita Dear Krishna, don't be unfair. They said, we know that you are a respectable 
member of the community, son of Nanda Maharaj. Everyone honors you here in this community. You're also very dear to us. Please give us back our clothes. And we're shivering here in, in the cold water. So what they're wondering is that if we come out of the water, that's one thing, but will we get our clothes back? Hmm? <laughs> you say, come on out of the water, we don't know if you'll give the clothes back. And, and look, you're well-known in the community, you have a good <coughs> reputation and, uh, and as an honorable person, and they're speaking to the boys, too, who are with him, and they say like this. And so there's some more back and forth between them. And then they continue, they say, Shama Sundara Te Dasya Karava Matavoditam Dehivasang Siddharmagya Nuchidragne Bhuvamahe. They say, Shama Sundara Te Dasya. They say, Shamsunda, we are your maidservants. We submit to you. They're actually voicing their own proposal that they had in their mantra to him directly. His name is Shamsunda Krishna. Accept us, we're your maidservants. And Karavama Tavoditam, we'll do whatever you say. But Dehiva Sangsi, give us back our clothes. <laughs> we'll come out, but you have to promise you'll give us back the clothes. They say Dehiva Sangsi Dharma Gya. This is a nice idea. They say we'll come out. We're your servants, we submit to you. We'll come out of the water, but you have to give us back our clothes. O Dharma Gya, O knower of dharma. So what's coming out to us here is, because we're hearing about this, it's a very kind of interesting idea of, you know, you don't read this kind of thing in the Bible. And so it's easy to misunderstand what this book is about. And so they use this word dharma gut, means, Krishna, you are the knower of religion. In one sense, they're saying you're the knower of religion, therefore you should give back the clothes, and be honest, and uh, be concerned about reputation in the community and so forth and acting properly. But what they're also saying to all of us is, you should know, this person whom we're submitting to, who's got our clothes, whom we're asking them back from, he's the very emblem of religious life. And that religious life takes on this kind of a color, this kind of a shape at a certain point. Religious life is ultimately about loving God. And love is about selflessness about giving, self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness, and so on. And while love seeks to distribute itself widely, you want to tell everyone when you celebrate, when you feel in love, it also, at the same time, finds the necessity to hide itself. Because we find not everybody can appreciate, so then we can't tell everybody exactly how we feel when we're in love. Not everybody will appreciate. And the last thing you want to do is share your, your love for someone and not have it appreciated. So you find that there are only certain quarters in which that can be talked about and so forth. So this kind of high love of God where devotees are in such a drama of love that it takes this shape is very intimate. This is God they're dealing with like this. It's a very intimate situation. The point is the higher we go on the ladder of love of God, the more it kind of hides itself in a sense. It takes on a shape that is not externally recognizable. So it, it doesn't appear like, like this might appear like some, you know, in times gone by, a pornographic book or something like that. I mean, not, not in today's culture, but in Victorian times or something like that. So prone to being misunderstood. So anyway, they're saying, they're warning us, they're telling everyone who's reading this, this is actually the height of religion. He's Dharma Gyat. 
he's the personification of the dharma of, of love. It doesn't get any purer than this. They're saying, we know that. And then they say, in the spirit of the Leela, no ched ragne bhuvamahe. You're the knower of dharma. In a simple sense, you're supposed to be a religious person, so give us back our clothes, and, and if you don't, we'll tell the king. <laughs> they say. So, of course, Krishna could care less for King Kangsa, as you know. But uh, that's not who they're referring to. They're referring to King Nanda, the king of the cowards, his, who's his own father, Krishna's own father. But um, he, he's not afraid, because he knows they'll never do that. They won't do it. So what happens is his vira, his heroism, starts to shine out, his fearlessness, and this very charming side effect, the heroism of Krishna, the fearlessness. The boys love that, his friends. <laughs> his friends are very much uh, like this aspect, virarasa, heroism. So he considers himself like a hero of dharma here, and they've said it themselves, practically. Dharma vira, hero of dharma. And uh, so he replies to them without any fear. The spirit of what he says, without any fear, any apprehension. They're charmed by that. They love that. What's going on in all these talks is they're just endearing themselves to one another that much more. He says, if you girls are actually my maidservants, as you just said, and if you really do whatever, will do whatever I say, then I say, come here with your innocent smiles and let each girl pick out her clothes. If you don't do what I say, I won't give them back to you. And even if the king becomes angry, what can he do? <laughs> Krishna's speaking about his father like this. What can he do? He knows he, they won't tell. Because if Nanda Maharaj was actually upset with him, that would be a catastrophe for him. So he's not saying, I'll give him back. He says, if you don't come out, I won't give him back. But I'm saying, come out. They're saying, we'll come out. Promise you'll give him back. He's not saying... Well, He's, they're insisting, like the underscore that the, the fact that he'll give them back, but he's not saying that. So he's abusing them in a, in a sense. He's abusing them. Then, shivering from the painful cold, all the girls rose up out of the water, covering their private parts with their hands and their hair. It's implied here. It says they're coming out of the painful cold water shivering, but actually the fact of the matter is they're shivering out of love for Krishna and the prospect that what they've been trying to accomplish all month long, it just might be happening or just might not be happening. <laughs> and it could be the worst case scenario. He's not going to accept us. And here we, we've ruined our chastity and so this is a very emotionally intense moment for them. And although Krishna's, you see, he's saying come and everything will be all right. And uh, But he's leaving something. He's not promising I'll give you back the clothes. There's some risk involved. There's some risk involved in their coming out. And so we to learn from this also that there's some risk involved, apparently, in spiritual life. When we hear about spiritual life, it's very attractive. It can be spoken of in a very attractive and compelling way. And it sounds great, but it's kind of invisible. In order to get it, you have to come out of the cold water and leave your attachments behind and and your securities. Like, well, if I come, can you guarantee, if I go and I chant, 
and I sit there and I give myself to this. Can you guarantee me that, you know, I'm going to... Can you give me some tangible confirmation? And there is no tangible confirmation in a sense. And it looks almost like, gosh, well, I've got something here. It's not great, but it's like I've got something. At least I can hold on to it. And for spiritual life, I have to let go of so many things and throw myself, cast myself towards the Absolute with spiritual practices and sages are standing there saying it works, it's great, so forth, but what they're actually experiencing is, is invisible. They're talking about it to us, but it's invisible in a sense. And so there's a kind of a risk involved. In the beginning of spiritual life, it looks to us as if everything is risked and what will the gain be? Because we are attached more to our false sense of security and we think we've got something. But as we move in that direction towards spirituality, with the thought, well, anyway, nothing risked, nothing gained, and we apply ourselves, what we end up with realizing is there was nothing to risk and everything to gain. What we have is nothing. And it doesn't take much to realize that because whatever we have, we're going to keep it. Right? It will be taken away from us by time, the hand of God. That's inevitable. So why not put ourselves in the hand of God now? He's controlling everything. He's taking everything from us anyway. And by that showing us He's in control. We like to think we're in control. We get some false sense of security from that. But it's so false because we're out of control. <laughs> Our lives, to one extent or another, are out of control. Like we try to control circumstances and so forth, but there's just too many unpredictable factors. We can't. It's a, it's a very laborious and difficult task to try to control our lives and make everything work. So at one point we just had to put our hands up like this and say, Hare Krishna, or something like that. Hallelujah. Hare Krishna. I give up. Yeah. 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 Put your love in front of yourself for the love of God. Then whatever you're leaving behind is not tangible as what you're actually receiving. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. He's testing them right now. And in the context of the situation, the risk that they're taking is immense. Immense. Because this is a simple village and and the social system is such, like I say, that if they are to be seen naked by a young boy, it's just just like they won't be able to marry anyone else. Their whole families will be embarrassed. This is the way the society was at the time. Everything. Everything on the line, exactly. Everything on the line. You got it. Well, just now they're starting to come out, but though it's not mentioned here directly, what happened was as they come out there, they make a noise and say, who's that? And the cowherds look the other way and, and Krishna also distracts them. And so only Krishna's seen them. And now it gets worse but better. <laughs> <laughs> they come out of the water and Bhagavan Ahata Viksha Shuddha Bhava Prasadita Skande Nidhaya Vasangsi Prita Pravacha Sasmitam. When Bhagavan, it means that now he's being addressed by the narrator as God, as Krishna. When God, just to put it in perspective for us, saw how these milkmaidens were struck with embarrassment, he himself was stunned. 
by the measure of their willingness to take risk for him, how they passed the test, the test of faith that he was putting before them. It's hard to emphasize this enough because we live in a different society, so it doesn't... Well, what I mean by that, what's happening in the play here is that it doesn't seem as much of a risk as, as it is if we understand the culture and the context of the play. It's So he's just absolutely flabbergasted by their willingness to come out. He's stunned by that, what risk they're taking. And he's charmed by it. They, love, they have such love for him. So he can't really speak. He's like stunned. And so this puts more question in their mind, <laughs> even. They don't know, is, is he, they don't think he's stunned by our taking such risk and exercising our faith. They're, they're wondering, well, maybe even that much more, he's not going to accept us. He's not saying anything, anything. But indeed, he is satisfied by their love and affection. So he puts their clothes on his shoulder, and then after some hesitation, he begins to speak. He says, you girls bathe naked. Listen to what he says. You bathe naked while executing your vow. Now, what are they doing? They're standing there like, like this. They're covering their private parts. So they're kind of out. They've kind of done what he said. I mean, they came out of the water. They came to get the clothes. And so if something goes wrong, he doesn't accept them. Well, they didn't. he didn't see them entirely, right? The hair is down over the breast. The small girls are put in front and the big girls behind them. Way they're still kind of half hiding themselves, even as they come onto the shore of the Jumuna. So Krishna says, You girls, you bathed in the water, in the river, the sacred river, executing your vow, and you did so naked, and that's an offense. You can't go in the sacred water naked, he says. The god of the water has been offended by this. Now, he said, to counteract your offense, what you have to do is you place your hands folded like this above your head and bow to, to God. So, this is the final test here. Now. <laughs> what will they do? He says, then you can get back your garments, possibly. So, what they do is they, they raise their, they do it, they put their hands above their head and they bow to Him in the sense that in this culture, at this time, that this drama is taking place. The husband becomes the god of the wife and that's how that was conceived and she bows to him at the time of marriage. So this is the spirit in which they're, they're doing that. They're bowing to him, actually, and this is what they're hoping, that they're going to get, okay, we've done everything now, we've, we'll get some confirmation from you. So, as I said, I mentioned earlier, he is extremely moved by all this, but he's putting up an external show of detachment still, but it's getting very difficult for him to do so. So the narrator changes the, uh, the meter of the verse here and makes a statement. He says, thus the young girls of Vrindavan, considering what the infallible Krishna, Achutya, had told them, accepted that they had suffered a fall down from bathing naked in the river, but they still desire to successfully complete their vow. And since Krishna is himself the ultimate result of all pious activities, they offer their obeisance to him to cleanse away all their sins. As I say, they put their hands above their head, they bow to him. But this was the spirit of it, as I said. You are our husband, and you are the God in our life. Then he says, seeing them bow down like that, Bhagavan, God, gave them back their garments. 
feeling compassionate toward them and satisfied by their action. Although the gopis had been cheated, deprived of their modesty, ridiculed and made to act <coughs> just like toy dolls, and although their clothing had been stolen, they did not feel at all inimical towards Krishna. Rather, they were simply joyful to have this opportunity to associate with their beloved. So, this is the kind of spirit with which we have to approach spiritual life and God. As we approach, sometimes we may not get the kind of reciprocation we expect. We may be tested. We may be abused, even. But if we are to become a member of the play of God, then it will be based on the kindness of God, the mercy of God. So when we're standing in line for mercy, we can't plead for justice at the same time. The two are contradictory. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, Aslishyava padartam pimastumam arashanam mamahatam kurotuva. Like this, we're being instructed here in Bhagavatam. So many things may come. We may look up into the sky, like that Chakora bird in India looks up in the sky. He won't drink water. It falls on the ground. He only drinks water that comes from the cloud. So he looks up into the sky for that. He has a pure ideal, in other words. He has a pure ideal. I'll only drink the water that comes from the cloud. If it touches the earth, it becomes contaminated in any way. I won't drink like that. So with a pure ideal, we may look upward towards God and say, I only accept that which is the pure life. I take nothing from this contaminated soil of the realm of karma. I'm finished with that. And noble as that is, we may look up like that Chakora bird, and rather than a drop of rain, a lightning bolt may come. It's possible to test us. So we have to be prepared for that. This is the idea. So they passed this test in every respect. They never got angry at God. They never became inimical towards Krishna. The gopis were addicted to associating with their beloved Krishna that they became captivated by him. Thus, even after putting their clothes on, they did not move. They simply remained where they were, shyly glancing at him. So they had done everything, and he expressed his pleasure with them, and now they're waiting for, well, that's, that's it. Now we're going to get married right here on the riverside here. So they're expecting a, what they call a Gandharva marriage, a particular type of like, kind of like a eloping type of marriage is going to take place. Krishna understood what they were thinking, naturally, and what their vow was all about to get him as a husband. And they wanted to, in a marriage ceremony, when the marriage ceremony is complete in these circles, then the woman touches the feet of the husband, the wife. So they're waiting now for the opportunity to touch his feet or to be ratified. So basically Krishna says to them, I understand your real motive in this austerity has been to worship me. The intent of yours is approved by me. He says, indeed, it must come to pass. What he says to them is, what marriage is really all about is is the feelings that we have for one another. And everything else, the foot touching and all this business and the ceremony, that's all extra. That's all just uh, superficial. He says, believe me, I love you, you love me, we're connected. As far as any symbol to ratify this, he's saying this also, the boys are there. So he's saying to them privately, rather than having a little ceremony and having them touch his feet and so forth, he says to them that, um, first he gives a philosophical 
explanation. He says, The desire of those who fix their mind on me does not lead to material desire for sense gratification. Just as barley corns burned by the sun, then cooked, can no longer grow new sprouts. It's kind of esoteric. But what he's saying is that the desire that you have for love for me, which is similar in one sense to the desire young girls have to love young boys, is very different. And when that kind of desire is reposed in me, there's never any possibility that it won't be fruitful, that it will produce something less than that. Like if you take a seed and you fry it, and then you put it in water with sugar in it and boil it, it's never going to sprout. So he's saying the seed looks the same, that the way you relate in love to me looks like how young girls relate to young boys, but this is very different. This way you've approached me like this will bear extraordinary fruit. It's happened. What you want, he's saying, you got it. And he says, for now, go home, and your desire is fulfilled, for in my company, in the coming nights, we will enjoy together. It means we will consummate what's really taken place in substance here. After all, he says, this was the purpose of your vow in your worship of the goddess, O pure-hearted ones. Thus instructed by God, the young girls, their desire now fulfilled, could bring themselves only with great difficulty to return to the village of Brudge, meditating all the while on his lotus feet. So he, what he's saying to them here is, it's happened. You've reached the point in your spiritual practice now that what you've aspired for for lifetimes and lifetimes will bear fruit. And in the coming nights, which means one year later, in the month of Kartik, this month that just passed, I'll play my flute, you'll come in the forest, and we'll consummate this relationship. That's called the Raslila. Any question? All right. It's very nice of all of you to attend, and uh, I've had a very nice time overall in the few days I spent here. I look forward to coming again. And Yes, okay. Right. okay, I'll come as soon as I can. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.